My first guest this evening, Robert O'Byrne, knows a thing or two about beautiful Irish buildings, homes, gardens and ob- the objects they contain. After all, he's written over a dozen books on the subject from Lugala Days, Days, The Story of the Guinness House, uh, to The Last Night, a tribute to Desmond Fitzgerald, The 29th Night of Glynn, and his series on RTE, Ireland's Historic Gardens, which was broadcast on RTE last year. Over the years, visiting these beautiful sites, Robert began to teach himself photography in order to capture what he saw. Now, an exhibition of those photographs, The Irish Esthete, 10 years in the making, will go on view at the Irish Architectural Archive in Marion Square from next Thursday. I'm delighted to have Robert O'Byrne with me in studio this evening. Before we get into the, the images themselves, Robert. Yes. The Irish Esthete. That, yes. I presume, is you. I'm looking at your attire this evening. I can see why you refer to yourself. <laughs> Which is that. why we're on radio rather than television. <laughs> but, um, you know, there is, uh, on the Irish Esthete, uh, there is a subclause saying... This is not, this is an, not an oxymoron. I know, provocative, isn't it? Yes, I, intentionally you, so. To suggest that there are no aesthetes in Ireland? No, it's to encourage all of us to come out of our respective aesthetic closets and celebrate the beauty of the country together. Right. Okay. I'm so, just leading the way. Yeah, but you are the. You're not just an Irish aesthete here, are you? You are quite definitely the definite article. You are the Irish aesthete. Well, if you say so, who am I to disagree? <laughs> Is that the suggestion? Well, you're having fun with that. Tidy, I am, of course. Clearly, yeah. Of course I am. You know, before I started this, I thought, I, I originally was going to call it the ascetic aesthete, but I thought that's even more difficult to pronounce. <laughs> yeah. It's challenging enough to say aesthete without saying the ascetic aesthete. Yes, yes, yes. So... You did. You do also say ten years in the making. Yeah. Are you referring to? I mean, it took a lot more than ten years to develop <laughs> your skills and style. I would have thought, but you're referring to a specific period of time in your life. Yeah, it's because ten years ago, September 2012. I I can't remember exactly why I I decided to start a site. Uh, celebrating Ireland's architectural heritage and bringing it to a wider audience, if possible. So I set it up. But, of course, if you're doing that, you can't just write about it. You know, I'm a writer. I've been a writer for decades. So I had to start taking pictures, but I don't own a camera. I've never owned a camera. I never took photographs when I was younger. So the obvious thing is your phone. Uh, So I pulled the phone out and started to use that to take photographs. And fortunately, the phones got better. And I hope I kept up with them too and got better as well. Again, you surprised me on, on that particular aspect of things because I, I was thinking, oh, no, Robert O'Byrne, he will have, you know, a Browning camera that's absolutely perfect <laughs> and he'll be developing the photographs himself in the of dark course, room. in my own little dark room. <laughs> no, I remember as a child, I briefly had a camera uh, aged about nine or ten and I swapped it with my younger brother for his postcard collection. So and that was it. And uh, what were the postcards of? Uh, I still have most of them, actually. I have an enormous postcard collection from childhood, running to thousands as well, actually, of buildings, again, of historic sites around the world. Yeah, so the the, the interest in the oh, was there of from, building yeah, from was the, there? From the start, from, from, from the start, yeah. But as I say, the thing is, with, with a, a mobile phone, it's so easy, it's so portable. You know, you see something you like, you catch a moment, it's done. Uh with a with a camera, I, I did actually a few years ago buy a camera. I used it for a couple of weeks and then thought this is so much trouble. You have to set the whole thing up mm. and you have to carry the thing around your neck and you have to remember to bring it with you and so forth. The phone is always in your pocket. 
And are you a taker of multiple images that you then go through and choose one or two from? I am, yeah. I, I think, you know, there's there's always one. You take sort of five or six of, of any particular view and one of them, you look through those and you think, yeah, that is the one. And all professional photographers, I think, do the same thing. They take multiple images as well. And then there's the one that you just know this is this hits the spot. Although I can hear those who use films screaming at the radio right now saying, no, I wait for the moment, I capture it and then I develop it. And I guess that that's a particular skill well, in itself, isn't it? Uh, screamers, if you say so. <laughs> uh, of all the countries in the world, Ireland is a country of ruins. Quote there from Johann George Cole or Georg, I presume he would be Cole, yeah. fellow traveller uh, from back in the 19th century. Yeah, from the he, 1840s. Yeah, you, you, you followed a similar path to him ferreting out these old and forgotten houses. Was he a, a kind of a guiding light across <laughs> the years? Um, the thing is, as he points out, Ireland is the country for us. We do have a great many of them. Uh, they go back millennia you know there's mm. wonderful early uh, christian ruins and right up to you know fresh ruins being produced on a weekly basis practically one sometimes feels traveling around the country we have a lot of ruins and there is something very enticing about if one dare use the expression a good ruin you know you can't beat a good ruin a nice mm. crumbly house you immediately feel drawn to it but I'm not just drawn to it because it's a crumbly building. There has to be some history to it. There has to be something else. There are quite a number of people now who uh, do travel around the country, you know, ferreting out old neglected buildings um, and good for them. But what matters to me is not just that, but the history behind the building, the context of it, what's the story, who were the people who were associated with it and so on and so forth. So, as I say, I'm a writer and I'm a historian. That matters as much as, as the images do to me, that there has to be something more than just a good picture. And just briefly on the number of ruins and the, the, you know, yeah. the fact that you say there are lots of them, to what extent is, uh, we're talking about, I, I'm guessing in a lot of cases, I know you said they go back millennia, but mm. the ascendancy houses that you would might have a particular, particular interest in that are, mm. are crumbling and falling apart. Not just financial reasons, I would think, is part of the reason for the number of ruins. Does our history, and particularly the history of 100 years ago, feed course, into that number you know, of ruins? This is the, uh, the decade of centenaries we're in that. We're in that particular time now. 1921 to 23 was the particular time during the, the War of Independence, the Civil War, when a, something in the region of 300 houses were burnt. So, yeah, the, the, that is the case, and, and we do have those. But a lot more houses were abandoned, unroofed and so forth in mm. the 50s and 60s than, than ever were burnt in the 20s. Oh, well, that's, that's so, interesting to know. That yeah. in, So, in fact, it was a as much as any a financial situation that they couldn't be getting. primarily a yeah. financial situation you know anybody who owns a house knows the cost of the upkeep of it all of us do yeah. who are fortunate to own a property you know there's the gutters there's the roofs there's the windows there's stuff now multiply that by a factor of when you have a very big yeah. house and you can see why some people just decided they couldn't manage it all right let us tweet some of the images uh, as we go here um uh, so people can get a sense yeah. of, of what we're talking about at RTE arena if you want to follow the images. That, and these are all in the exhibition, Robert. These will all be in yeah. the exhibition, yeah. along with lots, lots more. Yeah, there's, there, there aren't Heaps just more. six or seven no, that no, we no. get to this, yeah. this evening. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking now at its... Uh, uh, this is one of the gardens that you've chosen, Oakfield Park from yeah. County Donegal. Absolutely beautiful setting here. Amazing. I, I was very lucky. I, I was taken there by uh, somebody I was staying with nearby. He took me over there on a beautiful sunny uh, summer morning. The light was perfect, everything. So Jerry Robinson bought this house and estate. He's a retired businessman. 
it's out. It's in Donegal. It was a deanery originally, and he's uh, done an amazing job creating these extraordinary gardens uh, with these wonderful buildings. This is a beautiful boathouse. Uh, which is, and you, you could be in Italy. Yeah, it's a, well, and part of that is because of the wonderful blue sky behind as well. Exactly, yeah. You yeah, but also the, the building, trees, yeah. the trees, the planting there is fabulous. Uh, he's, he's created this extraordinary site and it's open to the public. It's really a wonderful spot if you're going up to Donegal. It's really worth a visit. And the nature of this, is, is this a man-made lake? I presume it is. It was originally a man-made lake, so it, it was there already as part of the deanery uh, mm. gardens, but he's obviously enhanced it enormously. And you, you mentioned there, is, is that Italianate in style, is it? It is. It's very Italianate, that little building. It's like a little temple, that, such as you would see in, in, in Italy. All right. Let us go to the county of most importance in any of your conversation. <laughs> uh, I'll be going to Monaghan. Oh, oh, how did you guess? I have to admit a house with which I am not at all familiar well, you know, if if you had seen uh, films like The Adams Family, you'd think this had somehow strayed yes. from the set. This is Bessmount. Uh, Bessmount, yeah. It's an extraordinary. Monaghan. Now, the thing about that is there are photographs of Bessmount from the middle of the 19th century showing a very plain Georgian block. And then this couple got married in the, in the 1860s and decided to tweak their house a little bit and clearly they just couldn't stop you know nobody said actually we think that's enough so this has everything thrown at it it's really one of the most bizarre houses in ireland um, and it's privately owned very nice people who own it who are looking after it today yeah. who farm the land locally at RTE arena if you want to if you want to see the image of uh, bestmont house uh, what's striking about it, many things striking about it, it, it looks as if there's almost a church to the left-hand side of the yeah. image. And then all of these turreted, like little there's spires. gables and spires. As I say, it's like every Gothic detail they could find. And um, there's a wonderful porch with these carved figures. You you may know what's now the Alliance Francaise with those carved mm. monkeys uh, on playing on the outside, playing billiards and things like that. It's the similar figures with monkeys and rabbits and all sorts of figures gambling around. Um, on the outside of the of the main entrance to the house. All right. Um, and in the interests of equality, we, <laughs> we shall head um, to the other end of the country, which interesting is the other, um, and other end of the country in which my own family is involved, my current family, uh, County Kerry, we're heading oh, yeah. to next. And that's purely accidental that you chose that. Where are we going in, in Kerry? Castle Core, which is not that far actually from Killarney. And it's uh, it's a, a McElcuddy castle from Tower House, really, mm. from the mid fifteenth century, um, and you it's set with a wonderful view of the McElcuddy Reeks behind it. It's a really spectacular site. But um, this wonderful Tower House now sits in the middle of a golf course. So I photographed it again on a lovely summer's evening after the golfers had left. I didn't want to be hit by yeah, a ball so I while I was taking the picture. Um, the tower itself, I mean, it is in a, a state of some dilapidation. It is, yeah. It's still standing, but it's obviously, it, it, there's no roof on it. what period are 15th century, it's typical. That, you know, enormous numbers of these tower houses were built in the 15th and 16th century. There are something like 2,000 of them. And um, their purpose was it defence? Uh, it was. It, what happened was, in the early 15th century, just a brief history lesson, Henry VI offered um, landowners in the greater Dublin area, the outskirts of the pale 10 pounds if they built such a building uh, and uh, the rest of the country then took it up without the 10 pound offer and started to build them all over the country so there are literally thousands of them built Gosh, yeah and and again you managed to get complimenting your photographic skills here 
you were lucky with the day, clearly. Yeah, you can't, it was a beautiful you, you evening. Can't that. And the, the castle just turned orange in the sunset light. It was magic. Yeah, but but you, you position yourself, you mean it's perfectly centred on the on the the, mm. the screen itself in front of me here, as was the case with the, the little boathouse up in County yeah, Donegal. Yeah, yeah. So is that trial and error? Have you just it is. learned no, no, that over I, the years? I've sort of taught my, as I say, I've taught myself. I haven't taken any uh, photography classes. I've just taught myself. Uh, and initially, they weren't very good, my pictures. I can freely admit it. So don't go back through the site too far. <laughs> Stick with the more recent past is what I would recommend. Right. Let us then, um, we're going to the, the Midlands here, the interior entrance hall to Gloucester. Uh, Gloucester, one of my favourite houses. Again, the sunniest. You must have chosen all the sunny days. Maybe it was a particular. I think good the sun year. just follows me. Oh, that's that what it, Robert, There's think. a little pool of sunshine that follows <laughs> me around my, around my travels. No, Gloucester is a really extraordinary, very important early 18th century house designed by Edward Lovett Pierce, who also designed the Bank of Ireland mm. as the Parliament Building and so forth. And um, the interiors. That's a double height entrance hall. It's really magic. Yeah, five, there are uh, at RTE Arena again. If you want to see this image, uh, there are five windows, two on the on, on yeah. the low ground level with three the floor, above and three up above and there's a first floor gallery that overlooks this double height hall now that that building was owned by an order of nuns when I first saw it 40 years ago it was in very poor condition and the nuns eventually left uh, it had a bad period and then this wonderful couple Tom and Mary Alexander bought it about 20 years ago and they're not rich they've put all their money into the place and they've restored it and it is one of the most ravishing houses in Ireland. What is the floor here? There was large... It, it's Portland stone. There's large flagged Portland mm. stone floor. And and uh, is that polished up or <laughs> No, I mean, and the thing is that's several hundred years of just wear and tear have given it that lovely patina that you see there now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to some detailed, more detailed images now yeah. and particularly we're heading into the to the Royal Irish Academy uh, for this particular piece. Yeah, it's the Royal Irish what Academy we, of Music. Yeah, the Royal Irish Academy of Music. Of and it's yeah. in Westland Row. So it was built as a private house in mm. the 1770s. And for about 150 years, it's been the Academy of Music's headquarters now. And it has these extraordinary rooms. And that that's a room off the, off the ground floor mm. entrance hall. There's a room to the right. And it has these incredible uh, plasterwork decorations all over the walls. But the detail in, in this, I mean, it's like those little cameo brooches that, it, isn't it? My own mother used to wear exactly, but, the, but yeah. these these are obviously in plaster. This and, is in and plaster up on the wall. applied on the walls, and then it, the interior the interior section of that decoration uh, is painted with this grisaille, you know, this monochrome mm. decoration of classical figures. And we don't know who was responsible for that work. And and. Uh, the min uh, maintaining that, how difficult is it, or would that have been restored several times along the way just you to know, keep it in that state? That room is used for that music room has been used for for, for cent a century and a half for music classes, mm. and yet somehow this work has all survived. It's really magic, as you may know. The uh, academy is building a, a large extension at the back, yes, and therefore those rooms. I'm hoping because there's wonderful decorative rooms on the first floor of that building as well. I think they're going to be cleaned up, and and they should really be celebrated because it's one of the most lovely decorated houses in Ireland. And if you want proof that um, something kind of half crumbling and nearly falling apart is still beautiful to look at, have a look at the, this image at RTE Arena 
Imperiled Screg. In, Screg. In, uh, in it's such a magic Roman. house. So Screg was built in the 18th century for the Kelly. The local family, the Kellys have been in Roscommon since time immemorial. Uh, in fact, there's a, you may know it, one of Anthony Trollope's very first novel, uh, The Kellys and the O'Kellys, yeah. which is set up in that part of the world. And uh, it's a Kelly house. <clears throat> the present generation of family who live there just couldn't maintain it. So they live in a very comfortable, modest bungalow in front of the house. And this wonderful, great 18th century house, Irish, old Irish Catholic family home, uh, sits there empty, unfortunately, and has been for several decades. It's still standing, but, you know, it's a, it's a place that could do with a bit of attention. Oh, but is that does that really mean it could do with a lot of money to get a bit it, of attention? It, it would benefit from money, certainly, <laughs> shall we say. Uh, uh, but it's wonderful. It's still there and it's still owned by, the, by yeah. the, a branch of the Kelly family. And I think that's very important. It's still part of our national history. Final image that I want to look at, Robert. Yeah. This is this is truly one of the ruins. But even as I look at this, it's the ruins of the Presentation Convent in Mitchellstown. But even as I look at it, you can see the splendour that was there. I know. And, and how I, I know there's a lot of these. To restore that. There's a lot of these all around the country because the religious orders have all left these towns, especially, mm. and it's finding a new use for them. And particularly, say somewhere like Mitchellstown, this is an enormous complex. It's overlooking the town, and you keep thinking. How could we have a homeless problem when there are buildings like this which could be very easily converted, instead of mm. which the whole place is sitting empty, the floors have all gone in most of it, the chapel which you're looking at there is in terrible condition, all the windows are broken, everything's been smashed up. Uh, and yet this, this has only happened in the last 20 years. You know, so you, would you be in favour of, rather than just leaving these places crumble like that, to, to make them into perfectly practical and usable Absolutely. contemporary accommodation but to maintain some kind of aesthetic. Absolutely and sometimes that has happened you know there, there have been good conversion jobs done on historic buildings and particularly like religious complexes there's a number of them um, and places like that certainly definitely have a future if if there were people prepared to take them on you know these are valuable commodities and they could provide an enormous amount of accommodation in very beautiful well-built settings yeah and maintain some part of the history and, in the and, process. Ma- and keep the history that that building goes back to the 1850s it's part of Mitchellstown's history for 170 years it's a shame to see it looking like that now well, on the basis of those seven images, there's certainly some very beautiful things to look at, even those that are slightly <laughs> ruined in the midst of it all. Robert, thanks so much for coming into us this evening. You're very welcome. Uh, and that uh, exhibition that Robert was telling us about, the Irish SD, 10 years in the making, can be seen at the Irish Architectural Archive. That's on 45 Marion Square in Dublin, too. And it's there from December the 2nd through until December the 22nd, Monday to Friday, 10 p, 10, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. I-A-R-C dot I-E for full details. Had he lived yesterday, the 27th of November 2022, would have been the 80th birthday of Jimi Hendrix. That's a truly wonderful thing to imagine, I think. In a career which spanned just four years, Jimi Hendrix managed to achieve legendary status as a guitarist, perhaps the greatest guitarist ever. And not just because of his technical skill and virtuosity, but also because of his innovation in using effects and feedback to alter the sound. If there is a god of rock and roll guitar, surely it is Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix, his death at the age of 27, inevitably leads to glib comparisons with fellow rockers whose careers were similarly cut off by sh- uh, cut short by excess and tragedy. But to focus on that, surely, is to diminish 
the musical achievement that he four years let's remember that four years is what we're talking about so Peter Murphy is with me in studio this evening to delve into Jimi Hendrix the musician and when you come in through the door Peter I said to you what do you want to hear first so your wish now is my command what do you want to hear first Voodoo Child Slight Return please Jimi Hendrix is you say ah well yeah no, well, there'll be a big solo in the middle no the solo with Jimi Hendrix is at the beginning in the middle a little bit further on and at the end they're all over the place I mean the nature of the guitar playing there Peter Murphy even as we were listening to the top of it we said that, that sounds like a like a human voice he makes it he makes this get the instrument sing I think that's my favourite because it's like a history of African American music in five minutes so it starts with with the wah wah that could be like Isaac Hayes, it could be Shaft, and then but then it goes back into a brag song like John Lee Hooker or Muddy Waters or Ma Rainey. Uh, well, I stand up next to a mountain and I chop it down with the edge of my hand. It's like a supernatural brag, and then in comes the drums and immediately goes into psychedelic. Wow, wow, funkadelic, sly in the family stone kind of area that, uh, into cosmic sci fi land. He yeah. then leaves the planet. He's, and he had a lot in terms of theme and feel and look and imagery with Sun Ra. And he had a lot in common with John Coltrane and Miles Davis and the jazz exploration stuff and psychedelia yeah. and Motown and soul. So just there in five minutes, yeah, he does you, you've got the 20th century. Yeah, and well, he, he managed to do that in four years as well across several <laughs> songs. But where, where did this music all start? What kind of beginnings, what kind of family did he have that this guitar genius came out of? Okay, so... Genius is generally the word. Yeah, I, I hate using it, but it's in his case, it's but usable. It's, so, and I was thinking about, well, what is it about Hendrix? Well, we refer to anybody who's a master as the Hendrix of mm. carpentry, as the Hendrix of dance. So at what point did this one man become synonymous with absolute mastery? Um, it's It comes out of, and I was rereading uh, Charles R. Cross's biography, Room Full of Mirrors. He also did an amazing biography of Kurt Cobain, Heavier Than Heaven. So I would say there's two books, Cross Down Traffic by Charles Char Murray as well, are the two I'd recommend. It comes out of a, an awful lot of pain in his childhood. So he was born in Seattle, Washington, 
80 years ago yesterday. Afro-American Irish Cherokee lineage. His father, Al, was an army guy. His mother, uh, Lucille, was a dancer. They were married for three days. She was, it was basically a shotgun wedding. She was pregnant. They got married and he was sent away to the army. Didn't see his son for three years. Jimmy was born, or Johnny, as he was known as. Um, both mother and father were heavy drinkers, had violent and dysfunctional environment. Uh, young uh, Jimmy, as we will call him, and his brother Leon used to hide in cupboards. They were so afraid. They had two sisters who were fostered out. They had a disabled brother who was given to into the care of the state. They were shunted from grandmother to grandfather to grandmother to grandfather to friends, aunts. And um, there is a suggestion also that he confessed to a girlfriend when he was an adult that he was sexually abused as a kid. At some point, he attached himself to a broomstick and would play it like a guitar and could not be separated from it. Uh, he then... Uh, managed to get hold of a one-string ukulele, which he managed to manipulate in order to get tonal sounds out of it. And he began to learn blues licks and Elvis songs, Southpaw style. And like this is just this is coming from within him. We can hear the pain all over every solo he plays. Yeah, but the facility. I mean, the the way that he plays. Where did that come from? He, 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 totally self-taught. Well, there's, you know, the ten thousand hours uh, rule yeah, also yeah. applies. Self-taught and practice. He got into a jam, I think stealing a car or something, and he ended up having to volunteer for the 101st Airborne in order to avoid prison. He was granted a discharge a year later because he was painfully unsuited for the military life. And then uh, scored gig after gig after gig on what they used to call the Chitlin Circuit, which was the segregated circuit that black musicians could play on. So he... Just played across the South backing Wilson Pickett and Little Richard, Sam Cook, Jackie Wilson, the Isley Brothers, Curtis Knight. And it kept getting sacked because of his onstage flamboyance. And he got tired of playing the sideman and formed his own band and got a scored a residency at the Cafe Wa on MacDougall Street in Greenwich. And where is, is this in and around 67? This 60, is 65. Yeah, and 67 is a big Six, year though. Uh, 66 was where Chaz Chandler, who was managing the animals, uh, was tipped off by Brian Jones' girlfriend, Linda Keith, I think, uh, to check this kid out. Uh, Chaz Chandler brought him across the sea. He changed his name from Johnny or from Jimmy uh, MMY to J-I-M-I on the plane over. Um, Chaz Chandler found him a couple of musicians, Noel Redding and Mitch Mitchell. He formed the experience, immediately started playing shows in London. Jaws are hitting the ground. Paul McCartney, Eric Clapton, Pete Townsend, Brian Jones and just about every other musician in London cannot believe what they're seeing. They release three singles in quick succession, all of which make the UK top 10. Uh, all along the watch Hey Joe. Um, hey Joe was the first one, then Purple Haze, and then The Wind Cries Mary.
we go. A little taste of Purple Haze from Jimi Hendrix, uh, who would have been 80 yesterday had he lived. And Peter Murphy is with me in the studio this evening. You were saying as we were listening to that, Peter, about he's playing rhythm guitar and so and the lead guitar. He's playing it all in the in the midst of that. But yet when he goes into a solo, you don't suddenly feel, oh, something has fallen away. Something has gone and gone out of the mix. And as far as I can tell, there's not a lot of double tracking going on. I can't hear any rhythm guitar parts there that have been overdubbed. I think a lot of what they were doing was fairly live to tape. So he just had a he had this. Robert Johnson had it too, incidentally. They often said of Robert Johnson, they sound like there were three guitars playing at the same time. I think that may be due to the physical length of of person's fingers. Robert Johnson had inordinately long fingers and I think Hendrix did as well. But I mean, apart from just the technique, it was not about technique, it was about feel, but as we were saying before, it was a, he was also an electronic musician because he was using feedback as an instrument it had been done before, Jeff Beck had done it before and Jimmy yeah. Page had done it before, but he actually used it in a sustained way. So he was like, so his guitar sounds just like it's talking and it's generating all these onomatopoeic sounds. He's using a wah-wah pedal, he's using a fuzz pedal, he's using high gain on the volume, he's using sustain. So it's an orchestra. Um, you, you were saying, uh, as Purple Hill started, you said, well, there's Vietnam in four bars yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, as well. How How much irony... How much love is there in his version of Star Spangled Banner? Um, I think, I think with, in the same way as maybe a song like Born in the USA or something, there's mm. like, there's love and hurt and irony. There's patriotism, but also disgust at what was going on. So I think... You know, he was interviewed on the Dick Cavett show, I remember, and he was just like, I'm American, so I played it, that's all. And he was like, uh, and Dick Cavett said, some people would say it's, you know, disrespectful to play the national anthem in that way. And he said, well, I thought it was beautiful. With all the Jimi Hendrix tracks, I just want to go home now and listen to all of them in <laughs> full when we finish up. But uh, if he had lived, we can only imagine what we would have got in, the, uh, you know, if we had even another half a dozen years, another ten years. What would what would he have done to guitar? What wh- how did he change guitar music? As we and we'll finish up with, I suppose, the big one all along the Watchtower. How did he change guitar music? Would you say he moved Peter? it into he vaporized all boundaries between genre. I think as a musician, he could go from um, acoustic, like the most beautiful acoustic courtly balladry almost to the most savage sounding white noise. You can hear sonic youth in him. You can hear the stone roses in him. You can hear Prince. Uh, you can hear Funkadelic. Um, I, you know, I... I don't know that there's a... It's hard to find anybody who doesn't, yeah, yeah, doesn't well, respect yeah. Jimi Hendrix, at least. Um, but I think... Uh, yeah, it, I think this man who came out of an inordinate amount of pain was lucky enough to find his Excalibur and it was a Stratocaster. 
How important is All Along the Watchtower? What does it tell us about him? It's probably the greatest cover version there there is. If you listen to Dylan's original on John Wesley Harding, it's a very spare, acoustic, amazing lyric. I mean, the storytelling in the lyric is is picture-perfect poetry. But Hendrix comes along, explodes the rhythm of it, completely springs the rhythm apart, turns it into a different song, uh, injects the lyric with with theatrical drama and then the guitar breaks or something else, or apocalyptic. Jimi Hendrix and his version there of All Along the Watchtower. Jimi Hendrix would have been 80 years old had he lived. His birthday was yesterday, the 27th of November. You're listening to Monday Night's Arena. D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover, first published in 1928, became notorious for its story of the physical relationship between a working-class man and an upper-class woman, its explicit descriptions of sex and its use of then-unprintable four-letter words. Netflix's spin on this story is directed by Lord de Clermont-Tonnerre and stars the Crown's Emma Curran as Lady Constance Chatterley, whose happy marriage to Sir Clifford Chatterley soon turns sour when he returns wounded and scarred from World War I. No longer able to walk, Clifford treats his wife as a nursemaid leaving her more lonely than she thought possible. But things change when she meets Oliver Mellers, played by Jack O'Connell, the new gamekeeper from the couple's estate. Mary McGill has been watching the Netflix version of Lady Chatterley's Lover, and she joins me now. Mary, I suppose most people are familiar with the subject matter of Lady Chatterley's Lover, but just give us a bit of a background to Lawrence's book itself, how scandalous it was, especially in the 1960s when it led to an obscenity trial in the UK. Yes, it's one of those books. I mean, what led me to it initially as a, as a teenager, Sean, was the fact that it had been banned everywhere and it did have this absolutely scandalous reputation. And I'm sure I'm a part of many generations yes. of young wi- women and men who sort the book out um, for those particular reasons. But in 1960, there was a landmark um, ruling in the UK about the book. Up until this point, it had been banned. It was banned here in Ireland. It was banned all over the world. And Penguin wanted to publish it and this wound up um in court um and you know penguin were expected to lose the case but spectacularly they did not and what was particularly um stunning about the victory was that it was a jury of ordinary men and women and they were happy to stand over the content of the book and penguin went on to sell i think in the region of three million copies very very quickly thereafter but it completely changed um i suppose representations of sexuality and language and so on um in literature regarding what could be printed and what couldn't Mm. be printed and one thing i 
like when I, I researching all of this as a background to watching the Netflix's adaptation, I came across um, a letter in the Irish Times from the 1960s where somebody was suggesting the book is banned in Ireland at that time, but they were suggesting a way to get around the censor, censor and a way to popularise the Irish language would be, and I quote, um, all we have to do is translate Lady Chatterley's lover into Irish. So it, it has a hell of a reputation. Yes, I've heard that argument before. Around, uh, <laughs> write it in Irish and you can say anything you like, more Indeed. or less, was an argument that was sometimes <laughs> thrown out there. But Mary, you quite honestly admitted the, the reasons you went <laughs> to the book as a teenager. And I think many people, if they were being honest, would have to make, make exactly the same admission that it was the notoriety of the book and the chance that there might be a bit of obscenity that you could read under the guise of reading literature. That was why many teenagers went to that book. However, as mm. the years went on and even at the time, what stuck with you from reading Lady Chatterley's Lover as a teenager? Well, you know, if it was just about the, the dirty bit, Sean, for want of a better expression, mm. you know, I mean, there are any number of books that would provide that. But Lady Chatterley's Lover has been adapted again and again and again um, in the English-speaking world, well beyond the English-speaking world, and again, obviously now by Netflix. And so it can't just simply be about the dirty bits. There is something really compelling and timeless um, about the love story between Connie and Mellors. It's one of those classic um, love stories of, of people kind of across the barricades. There's a real class mm. divide here. And I suppose maybe it's hard for modern audiences to understand that, but how absolutely scandalous it would have been in the 1920s when D.H. Lawrence was writing Lady Chatterley's Lover for a woman of Constance's social standing to fall in love with a man like Mellors, you know, her groundskeeper, utterly unthinkable. Um, and as the story, you know, is unafraid to show, there are very, very real, um, you know, economic, social um, and emotional consequences for pursuing this love story. But pursue it, they do, against great odds. But 1928 and the social mores of 1928, a very different world from 2022. So how does Netflix, what... What do they do to bring this into a, a modern world or do you, how do they deal with the fact that, that Lawrence was trying to get across that big class difference that perhaps isn't there to the same extent today? Well, it's funny you should say, say that, Sean, because I had similar concerns. And, and on the one hand, the story is very true to other adaptations, the source materials itself. But there is something about its themes that really really resonate. So we mentioned the character of, of Clifford, who is this incredibly well-to-do man who Constance or Connie marries and um, he's paralysed and, and they go to live in his sprawling country mansion called Ragby. And, and his family's wealth is built on the local coal mines. And, you know, Clifford is intent on exploiting these coal mines for all that they are worth and he's buying new technology that's going to be even more efficient at extracting this coal but it's going to make a lot of the men in these mines who are already working so so very very hard it's going to make them unemployed and as Connie be, become, comes into her own and becomes more critical and more self-aware particularly of her own class she begins to see 
problems with the way that Clifford worships at the altar of intellectualism and technology and all these things. And eventually this culminates in a row between the two of them where she tells him, you know, you're a bully. You know, she really rejects this idea. And I was watching it because we're going mm. through, uh, right at this very moment in time ourselves, a kind of a big kind of swing um, change in the technology sector, which is making a lot of people unemployed and is causing an awful lot of instability. And of course, all the power in those industries is concentrated, just as it was then, Sean, with a particular class and a particular type of individual. So on the one hand, I was struck by, you know, the specificness of the story and the context and all of these things, but also... You know, if you're th- talking about industrialization, yeah. some things remain the same. And I was I was also struck by that, too. As Claire Keegan said to me in the programme last Friday, human emotions are, the Friday before last, in fact, human emotions are, are the same no matter what period you're in, no matter what country you're in, no matter what kind of class difference you're in, human emotions are human emotions. However, let's, have a, listen to, let's have a listen to a clip from Lady Chatterley's Lover. This is a scene between Clifford, played by Matthew Duckett, uh, uh, who is proposing the idea that Connie, played by Emma Curran, maybe if he comes back from the war, obviously, and things are not great, he can't walk, and there's all sorts of difficulties. So he has a little proposal to put to his wife. I mind not being able to have a son here more than in any other place. I'm sorry we can't have one. It'd almost be a good thing if you had a son by another man. You're not serious. Why not? Why not? Because, because we're married. I married you, Clifford. Why would you even suggest such a thing? You've told me how much you would love a child. This way you could have one to dote on, to fill your days. As far as anyone else knows, I might still be capable of fathering a child. If we raised him here at Ragby, he'd be ours. Do you really mean this? Of course, I wouldn't want you to yield yourself completely to him. But the mechanical act of sex is nothing when compared to a life lived together. As long as you govern your emotions accordingly, we ought to be able to arrange this thing as simply as a trip to the dentist. A trip to the... And you wouldn't mind what man's child I had? Oh, no, I trust your judgment. You wouldn't let the wrong sort of fellow touch you. It'd have to be someone of the utmost discretion. The chattelly name depends on it. And that's Emma Corrin as, as Connie and Matthew Duckett as Clifford in a scene there from the new Netflix version of Lady Chatterley's Lover that Miriam McGill has been watching watching for us. Um, you can understand why Connie gets rather annoyed at her husband and becomes more and more disillusioned with the upper classes when you hear that type of that type of conversation between what was a very happy marriage up until the awful events of World War One and subsequent, I suppose, other things that happen on the estate. Mm, absolutely. There's a real kind of sense of awakening with Connie, a real sense that she, as a, a young woman, as a human being, has these needs that are just not being met, either in terms of, of her social class and the way that she is beginning to think about the world or within her marriage. Because what's so striking about that conversation is it's so, you know, what they're just, he, Clifford is so perfunctory about this really incredible thing that he is proposing and you can hear it in Connie's voice she's utterly mm. taken aback and he's so kind of almost laid back, laid back about the, the proposition that he's putting to her but of course what Clifford is doing there um, unbeknownst to himself is he's opening Pandora's box because the things that Connie um, are, is seeking they are actually to be found quite close to home um, and not just in a physical sense but also in an intellectual yeah. and emotional sense too because Mellors presents for her, to her a, a whole new way of being in the world that, that really um, 
changes her quite profoundly. Yeah, well, as you said, if if the if the discussion around perhaps having a surrogate father opens up some kind of Pandora's box, the moment at which um, she is introduced to Mellors opens up, uh, well, really <laughs> takes the lid right off the box and leaves everything visible. <laughs> Let's have a listen to again Emma Corrin as, as Connie, Matthew Duckett as Clifford, and Jack O'Connell as Mellors here coming to the rescue in a difficult situation for Clifford. Where are we going? Ah, you've always wanted me to join you on one of your walks. I've thought of somewhere I'd like to show you. I think your chair was made for this. Go, <laughs> <laughs> ah, Mellors! I wonder if you wouldn't give us a hand trying to get this chair started again. Sure. Uh, Connie, have you met Mellors? Our new gamekeeper. I like it on you, Floss. She's just being friendly. <laughs> Now then. You've been at rugby some time, Mr. Mellors. I was raised here, your ladyship. Whoop! Need some help? Uh, Mellors is quite capable of pushing on his own. There we are. <laughs> no, no, no. Whoop! That's an old show. Anything else? Good day. That was kind of you. I hope it wasn't too heavy. No, not heavy. Good day to you, your ladyship. Jack O'Connell as Mellors, Matthew Duckett as Clifford and Emma Corrin as Connie in a scene from the new Netflix version of Lady Chatterley's Lover. Mary McGill, um, it, it, it's kind of a three-hander, essentially, this film in, in many ways. What about those central performances and particularly Emma Corrin as Connie? Emma Corrin does incredible work in this, Sean. Connie is alive here. She is vibrant. She is, in, in contrast to a class that is both a physically and, and indeed materially kind of losing its grip, right? So the, the, this aristocracy that's too set in its ways, it's too greedy that Lawrence depicts is falling apart. She is so alive and so seeking and yearning in contrast to all of that. You know, Connie is, is, is the beating heart of the film. And then matched with Jack O'Connell, as Meller, who's, you know, it's hard to talk about the character at this stage because it has become so cliched, mm. you know, this this idea of the, of the brooding groundskeeper. But, you know, still waters do run deep. They have an intellectual connection that they read the same material. They have a great love of nature and physically they are just explosive together. Um, so so that, that that is the centre of the film. It's utterly believable. It's utterly compelling. Is there a lot of sex? Yes, but it's totally in keeping with the development and the intimacy that's growing between these two characters. So you couldn't say it was these or gratuitous or anything like that. So you, it, do, it, you have, if you're going to do Lady Chatterley's Lover, you have to have those sex scenes there. You do. But they are, they are done in a way that is not in any way, um, as you say, it, it, they're there for a very good reason. For a very good reason, for character development reasons, it makes absolute sense in, in the context and in terms of the narrative and where these characters are going in their lives, how they're developing as human beings and also the massive risks that they're taking. And of course, it's very hard not to feel sympathy for Clifford. You know, he has been like so many men and Mellors has been in the war as well and he's developed a lung condition as a consequence. You know, the great sacrifice and death and injury um, that resulted after the Great War and of course the shadow that hangs over all of this we, we know as, as modern readers of this material is that another war is, is, is coming down the tracks faster than, you know, um, people are, are, are to realise. So I, you know, there's there's not there's no re, re you know, reworking um, the mm. material hugely here. Um, 
if you like costume dramas, if you're a fan of Bridgerton and The Crown and, and other huge hits for Netflix that they have done so well, I think you'll find an awful lot to enjoy here. I certainly did. Right, thanks very much for that, Mary. That's Mary McGill and Lady Chatterley's Lover. Currently in cinemas, will be on Netflix from this Friday. Just